Almighty Father in heaven, our God of life, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we all see light. My prayer this morning, Heavenly Father, is that you will, by the power of your Spirit, cause us to see Jesus, that we may see his beauty and his glory, and that you might, by the power of your Spirit, grant us faith that we may trust in him. Do this for your namesake, I pray. Amen. Amen. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. Instead, it was a hobbit hole. And that means comfort. And only with this short sentence describing none other than a hole, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, launched many of us into quite an unexpected journey. And one of the great joys in of our lives is to be able to hear these stories and these stories being able to stir our imaginations to take us to places that are not here. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings is enchanting. And that is, it delights us and fills our thoughts with hearts, or fills our thoughts and hearts with fantastic things beyond just pumping gas or paying taxes or going to classes. It, it takes us beyond those places. Our imagination reminds us all that we are not here just to plod through life and then to die. But we long for something more. Our imaginations key us into this. Fantasies like Tolkien's reminds us that our hearts and our lives were made for something beyond this world. This world and our life must not be everything that there is. Our souls, indeed, every one of ours, are restless. And long for something more. This is what draws us to these things, these fantasies, these, these fantastic stories. And yet, this world does seem to have something, hints maybe, of what our soul really longs for. There's pleasures and there's good things. And yet, every time we taste them, we find out they're not as good as we thought they were. The day-to-day -day seems to point us to something, though shadowy, that is more real than what we can put our hands on, what we can finally organize and orchestrate in our lives. So in this way, our imaginations then serve us, not just to help us enjoy a fantastic story, but to also stir the hope we need to have in order to continue in our lives and to fix our eyes not merely on the clutter that's around us, but on things that we are convinced are more real than what we can put our hands on. So this morning, our imaginations will be required for us to understand the text that's before us. Not to fly off into some remarkable fairy tale, nor to check out of reality and to dream of dazzling worlds far away with amazing creatures and mythical powers. But even better, even better, our imaginations will be required this morning in order to understand something that is surely real. 
And that is the text that we have before us this morning. And as we do, we are called to live our lives with confident hope. That this world with all of its temporary joys and extraordinary yet unsatisfying pleasures is only pointing us to something beyond this world. Something that our hearts truly do desire. Something this world knows so little of. Those things that are real, good, beautiful, and true. Our imaginations then were given by our Maker just so we can fix our restless hearts on something beyond this world, and that is the hope that He gives us in His Word. Peter was a disciple that actually walked with Jesus, listened to Jesus, sat at His feet and heard His teachings. He was a first-hand encounter of what Jesus was saying and how Jesus was living. Peter is writing this book that we're in this morning, 1 Peter, and he was writing it to a group of Christians that, were, that used to live in Rome and used to work in Rome, used to raise their family in the city of Rome. And yet, after the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, these citizens who had become Christians, who had began trusting in Christ, because of their faith, they were made to quit their jobs. And they were made to leave their homes. They were run away from their homes. They were called to be exiles, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And they were run off and scattered throughout an entire area, a very large area that's called in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, all over the place. They were running because they were followers of Christ. And as these Christians were struggling to faithfully survive while also explaining to their wives, their spouses, their children that this sacrifice that they were making was because they were trusting in Christ, Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter 2, these Christians that are struggling to confirm that their hope in Christ and to strengthen that their faith in Christ is worth it. That Christ is enough to sustain them And that Christ will be enough for them even in all the loss that they're experiencing because of their faith. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And if you have that sitting in front of you this morning, I want you to notice two particular challenges that we have as we look at this text this morning. The first is that um, the focus of this text is on some, some pretty strange metaphors. Phrases and words that we wouldn't put together in normal sentences. If you scan through verses 4 through 8, you'll notice there's phrases in there like living stones. Have you ever said that before? (laughs) That doesn't even make sense. Those words don't go together. Living stones. Spiritual house, right? So these metaphors are going to require, as I mentioned earlier, our imagination. We're going to need our imagination in order to see what's really here. The the, the truth really points us to to a better, more fixed hope. And something that we're to long for and look for. So that's the first challenge of our text this morning. The second challenge that is here in our text this morning, if you glance at it, you'll notice that it's, it's broken up a good bit. I know in my Bible, the way it's laid out, it seems like they, they just kind of keep jumping lines here. And the reason that is so is because there are many Old Testament quotes in this passage. Peter here is bringing in his Old Testament understanding and quoting these verses. Now, here's the challenge. Many of us... Um, are less clear on our Old Testament than we are on our New Testament. The Old Testament um, is, is full of things that we're quite not as clear on and able to understand. 
And so this morning, as I read these texts, I'm not going to ask us to turn to them, but I would encourage you as I reference them and show you which text that Peter is actually referring to, I'm going to ask you to write those down and you can go back and read those in context to see if what I'm saying is actually what's being said in those verses, okay? So I don't want you to try to find those quickly this morning. Stay here with me in 1 Peter chapter 2 and I'll keep coming back to our passage here. But I will be jumping over to those texts, not only explaining the context of them, but then reading those texts to help you see what Peter's trying to do as he's bringing those texts into focus. Now, I hope I haven't caused you to check out already. <laughs> I hope I haven't caused you to say, you know what, I'm done. This is, this is way too hard already this morning. Um, and this is why. These verses that are before us this morning, God, in all of his wisdom, in his divine providence, I believe, and many of us in this room believe, that there's not a maverick molecule in all of creation. God orders all of those things. And so it's not by accident that you're here this morning. And I believe that the Lord has brought you here this morning, each and every one of us, not so that we can check out, but instead so that we can lean into these truths because our, our souls that are so parched desperately need to be watered. Our hearts have long become dull with the, with the things of the world that have been so glittery, and yet they've hurt us. And so this morning, this text will captivate our distracted hearts. And this morning, I'm sure this text, by the power of God's Spirit, will give us confidence that though this world may be passing away and seem so hopeless, our God has given us hope. And he's given us hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, do you remember last week? Um, this is actually the verse right before the one that we're looking at this morning. Look at verse 3 there. In verse 3 of, of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, it says, it says there, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tasting that the Lord is good. Peter here is describing the advantages of our faith. That when we come to Christ and we taste it, Him and we, we come to Him by faith, that we'll find out that what He has to offer is good and it is better than anything that this world has to offer. We talked about that last week. And we remember that as we were talking about that last week, we received this good by hearing the preaching of the gospel, which is this pure spiritual milk that's being spoken of in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Now this week, we're going to transition to verse 4, where Peter compels us to behold the sure value of Jesus Christ. That he is the necessary object of our faith, and he is the only object of our faith that will cause us to be able to stand. And Peter does not merely say to us, trust Jesus, but instead he paints these word pictures, and he wants to demonstrate to us with compelling argument that Christ is more valuable than any pleasure you might lose by following Jesus. Because this is exactly what the followers that Peter was speaking to is dealing with. And it's what exactly many of us here this morning are dealing with. As we follow Christ, what are the things that we have to say no to? What are the things that we lay aside that the world considers so valuable? And is it worth it following after Jesus and laying those things aside? With this context then in mind, I want us to turn our attention to these five verses. This we're going to spend our time this morning, these five verses, verses 4 through 8. And I want you to notice these five verses and see them under two headings. These are our two points for our sermon this morning, these two headings. Point number one, Christ the living stone. Christ the living stone. And we're going to see in verses 4 and 5 how Christ the living stone will build us up, being built up through Christ this living stone. Point number two then is Christ the, the cornerstone. 
Christ the cornerstone. This is verses 6 through 8. And with Christ as our cornerstone, in him we'll either stand or stumble. Point number one, Christ the living stone, verses 4 and 5. Point number two, Christ the cornerstone, verses 6 through 8. All right. Now we have our tracks before us. Let's begin point number one, Christ the living stone, and see how through Christ we are, as his people, built up. Notice with me, if you will, in verse 4. As we see a process unfolding before our eyes in verse 4, notice what it says here. As you come to him. That's a process, right? This is something that's, that's continuing to happen. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Do you see that there in verse 4? I'd like for you to see how Peter it naturally understands this tasting of God's goodness that's in verse 3. And he understands that this tasting of God's goodness naturally will flow into coming to Christ regularly. In other words, this placing our faith in him regularly. Peter is drawing from, as we noticed last week, from Psalm 34. He's actually pulling from his, his psalms quite a bit here. And he's drawing from Psalm 34, where in Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you see how he's drawing from that in verse 3 here in our passage? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And let me continue in Psalm 34 and listen, if you will. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Listen, the young lions suffer want and hunger. But listen to this, verse 10 of chapter of 34, Psalm 34. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Because the Lord is good, right? And then this is the last verse that I want you to hear. Psalm 34, verse 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come. And so Peter here, with Psalm 34 in mind, he's calling out us and, and calling us to taste that the Lord is good. And then the very next thing he says in verse 4 is come, which is later in verse 34. And he's calling us from verse 34 to come to this one who is the Lord. Who is the Lord? It says here, it says here in verse 3, um, it says, if, if indeed you ta have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, who is this him that is the Lord? Well, in Psalm 34, it is the I am God of the Old Testament, who's referred to as Yahweh. It's interesting that Peter is pulling that verse, verse 34, that's referring to the I am God of the Old Testament. And here he is clearly referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to Christ as the one who is the Lord, the Lord of the Old Testament, the Lord of the New Testament. This is not merely speaking of coming to Christ in a singular moment, like in verse 4 here, this coming to him. This is not like conversion, but this is actually a verb that's talking about we constantly and continually come back to Christ over and over again. It speaks of us um, continuously, regularly trusting in him, persistently fixing our hope on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what's being spoken of here when it says come to him as we constantly and regularly and persistently are coming to Christ. Now, as we notice this, it says we are to come to him, a living stone. We, we realize that this, this phrase is, is an odd one indeed. It's really something that should cause us to pause and stop because this is not something that we would regularly say or understand rightly. It's a very strange phrase, isn't it? Why is it then that Peter is bringing this phrase to these people? 
I mean, they're, they're hurting and they're going through so many things. Why is he, why is he toying with them in these words that are, that are strange to understand? Living stone doesn't go together, does it? So what is he doing? Why is it important for us to place our hope and our faith in Jesus, who is, as he declares here in Peter, a living stone? Now, notice with me, if you will, that this living stone is by many, specifically the the Jewish religious leaders, but by all of humanity largely, this living stone, according to verse 4, is one who is rejected by men. Do you see that there in verse 4? This living stone is rejected by men. Speaking of humanity, they will understand, and they, they need to understand, as they're living their lives, that it is not uncommon for those who are around us to reject Christ, who is our good think it very odd that we follow after this one who is called Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, who is this living stone, mysterious phrase. Why would, that, why would others believe in him and trust in him and follow him with such, different, uh, uh, um, such devotion and with such, with such incredible commitment? And we see this today as well, don't we? There are those who are around us who may give credence to Jesus, they may speak of his name, they may not even speak harshly about him, but really, down deep, they have no regard for Christ at all. They have no desire to pursue him. They live their lives with deference toward him. He's a commodity that they can add to their life when things get really, really hard, but then set aside when they can handle things on their own. They are not doing what this passage clearly is calling us to do, and that is to be coming to him regularly, often, as one who is this living stone. All around us, we see those who have no desire to come to Jesus, but instead reject him. And by our own evaluation and our own observing of this world, and even, I would say, by those who are in your family, maybe your spouse or your children, there may be those who are extended family members that will look around and say, Look at, look at what you're doing. This is crazy. Your, your commitment to, these, to church and to Jesus is, is causing you to make all these decisions that are, that are not allowing you to enjoy the things that are clearly things that we're supposed to be enjoying in life. You're going to regret this. This is, not a good, this is not a good judgment that you're making. But notice what it says in our passage. That though men may reject Jesus. Notice, notice what it says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God. In the sight of God, this one Jesus is chosen and precious. He's one to give your life to. He is one to trust. He is one to devote with extreme and absolute commitment all of your life. No matter what you may lose by claiming Christ, is worth it. Because you'll have, you'll have all that is good in him and him alone. Given just this verse, this verse in verse 4, we can recognize how Peter is likely pulling this metaphor of a living stone from another psalm that he was obviously familiar with. Peter grew up as a Jewish boy learning his Old Testament well. And so in Psalm 118, verse 22, listen to what it says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that's clearly what's being brought forward here as he speaks of this living stone rejected by men. Verse, uh, verse 22 of, one eight, of Psalm 118, it says, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because this is the one that the Lord has made. This stone, the stone that the builders themselves have rejected. This one is the cornerstone. We also know that when Peter was with Jesus and the other disciples, near the end of the ministry, they went and visited in Jerusalem, where there was the most magnificent building in all of creation during that time existed there, and that was the temple. And as they were coming and going inside that temple at least once a year, as they were exiting the temple near the end of Jesus' life, Mark chapter 13, it says this, And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples, which is interesting because the Gospel of Mark refers to one of his disciples all the time, and one of his disciples is actually Peter, because he's the one that was actually the, the source for the Gospel of Mark. So it's actually Peter mentioning this here. So it says, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples, that is Peter, said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. In other words, Peter is telling Jesus, Look at how amazing and significant this building is. It was considered one of the wonders of the world during that time. And Jesus said to him, that is Peter, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, can you imagine how perplexed Peter is at this point? Because Peter is thinking that they are following Jesus who is going to come and deliver Jerusalem and make it the epicenter of all the world again. And Peter's thinking, this is exactly the point where we need to, be, we need to make sure that this temple and all that's around it remains because this is the point of everything. So easy for us, just like Peter, to place all our hope on something that we can touch and that we can grab, that we can hold, that we can point to and say, this is where I'm going to put all of my desires and my hopes and my wants. This is the kingdom that I'm going to build, something that I can put my hands on. Peter's really doing nothing more than what we do so often by placing our hopes on these things that at the end of the day are vapor-like things. If you remember, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, and in Ecclesiastes we realized that everything that's in creation is vapor-like. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It will not last. So don't place your hope in it. Don't put all of your desires and your ambitions and your aims in those things. Even though some said that the stones that were at least the foundational stones of this magnificent temple, they found some of them now, and they say that many of those stones that were part of this temple, just to give you an idea of how large it was, some of those stones were close to three tons. A singular stone was close to three tons in building this temple. A massive, significant building. There's no way this thing will go away until it did. Until it is. It's no longer there. Only after the resurrection of Jesus Christ could the shadows and the fog that was in Peter's mind on that day, only after the resurrection was it that that Peter began connecting the dots and realizing that when Christ rose from the dead in all of his splendor and glory and confirmed that through his resurrection that all humanity can know God's presence and they don't have to go to a building. That through faith in Christ... The temple is no longer necessary. That through faith in Christ, one can come into the very presence of God. And that coming into the presence of God through Christ is more splendid and wonderful and magnificent than any building we would ever go to. This is why Peter here refers to Jesus as a living stone. A living stone. In other words, one who is living, who's come back from the dead, and one whom we can rest our life on. 
We can establish all of our life on this stone, on this one Jesus Christ. This became laser-like in its significance for Peter as he was being confronted as one who was preaching the gospel early in the book of Acts as the church was just starting to get underway and the church was being established and the Spirit had fallen upon God's people. And Peter was preaching and he was actually, he was boldly declaring um, Jesus Christ and he was brought before the council and told not to preach anymore by none other than those who rejected Jesus, (laughs) mind you. Listen to how Peter replies. Notice, I want you to see this because this is a unique theme for Peter in his life and ministry. It obviously gripped him as Jesus confronted him concerning this massive temple. And then after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is confronted by the council and told not to preach anymore. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's calling them out. He's saying, you religious leaders have rejected Jesus who is this stone. The builders which has become the cornerstone. And then Peter famously says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter was not backing down because he believed in the living stone who is Jesus Christ our Lord. So we can see that Peter had been gripped by this image, this this metaphor of Jesus being a living stone, promised as a type in in Psalm 118, but clearly brought forward and displayed at the resurrection of Christ. This is marvelous, and it is indeed the Lord's doing. But now look with me at verse 5. As we come to Jesus Christ in this way, as we come to him, as we constantly are coming to him, Peter explains that this does not, this is not something, this is something actually happens that is astonishing. This is just not, it doesn't end there, but instead the Lord actually causes something to happen for all of those who come to Christ, who come to this living stone. It causes each of those who trust in Christ, who come to him, to be so united with Christ that they too are called living stones. Look with me there in verse 5. It says in verse 5, you yourselves, it's almost like he has to reiterate. No, no, it's not any and everybody out there. It's not just kind of just general people out. No, it's you yourselves, anyone who comes to this one who is the living stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you see how trusting in Christ as this one who is the promised living stone causes us to be united to him as living stones ourselves. And as living stones united to Christ in this way, we are being built up together like living stones into a spiritual house of God, of, of God's own making. In other words, listen, this is very important. In other words, we're not simply stones that are scattered all over the place and lying here and there all over the world. That's not the plan. The image isn't that. You can see that clearly here. Nor is this an image of um, we're just another stone, another cog in in the wheel, if you will, another stone, and it's thrown onto the heap, and there's this big pile of stones that are just over there in the corner, and they're heaped up, and we're a part of that big pile of stones. That's not what is spoken of here either. Instead, what we have here is a building being built in a specific way for a particular purpose. We are, as those who come to Christ as a living stone, living stones, we are something far more wonderful than the temple of old ever was. We are, according to our passage, a spiritual house 
which is the church of the living God. This means that when we trust in Christ, when we come to Him, we are not doing this for ourselves and by ourselves. Now, you need to hear this because there's so many here this morning who came to faith in Jesus and you were completely convinced this was all about you being saved. That is not, you can't find that in Scripture. Now, did you personally have to do this? Yes. But what is being spoken of here is this. It means this, that when you trust in Christ, when you come to Him, you're not doing this for yourselves or by yourself. No, you do this within a body of believers. Instead, when we come to Christ, we are being fit together with others that are also trusting in Christ and are specifically called to live out our faith as interdependent members one with the other. That's what's being spoken of here. There's no way you can, you can pull the block out of the Jenga and the thing still stands, right? You pull enough of them out and they go all over the place. So this building, these stones are necessarily built on and dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're dependent, we're dependent upon one another as we're being built by Christ. This building up also means that, that, that this spiritual house is always growing. Did you see here what it says? Are being built up. It's constantly growing. And in the same way we know Christ continues to build into our lives those who are coming to trust in Christ. The Lord has been adding to the number of this congregation. And that's not been by accident. That's been by the Lord's working And as the Lord's been adding, the Lord's been adding these blocks to our congregation that we might live together, loving and serving one another. And it's not by accident the Lord has put us all here together to know each other and to love each other and to serve each other in this way. So why has the Lord put us together in this spiritual house and built upon us these other people that are around us that are these living stones that he's worked his spirit in? All of us coming to Jesus as the living stone and looking to him. What's the reason for it? We see here in verse 5, as it continues, the reason for it is that we might be a holy priesthood. Do you see that there? Again, this is an Old Testament reference that may be very odd for us to understand. We're called not only or not merely to exist in this house, show up, sit down, hang out for a little while here on Sunday morning, and then go about our business for the rest of the week. We're not called to simply exist in this house, but we are called to serve one another in a way like the priests did in the Old Testament, each and every one of us having that responsibility. What did they do in the Old Testament? Well, they offered animal sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And we notice here in our passage that Peter's making very clear that we are called as priests for quite a different reason. Though priests were called in a different way, instead of offering of offering sacrifices for sin as priests today in this new spiritual house. Now, because of Christ and his perfect and final sacrifice for our sin, we're called to, according to our passage, look what it says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to give up ourselves to the joyful serving Christ and one another. Why? Because our sin has been forgiven. And out of a joyous gratitude for what Christ has done for us by redeeming us and purchasing us, we are to serve one another, love one another, care for one another. And what are these spiritual sacrifices that are being spoken of here? What are these things that we're to be offering? They are the spiritual sacrifices of loving and serving one another faithfully. An example is us praying for one another. We're careful to not simply pray for one another. And that's very easy for us as, as Christians, especially, I'll pray for you, brother. 
and then never get around to it. Um, I hope that as you're here this morning and as you continue here in our congregation, you begin more and more sensing, wait a minute, prayer is something that's a big deal. It actually matters. And it is hard. It takes discipline and strength. There's nothing in me that wants to pray and wants to sit still with my eyes closed and hear someone else pray. It requires effort. It requires the Spirit of God working in me to, to work in me to be able to pray. We're called to approach the very throne of God, interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ, asking Jesus to do what we cannot do for them, equipping them and encouraging them and fostering faith in their hearts when they're struggling. This is a great privilege we have, and we should take this seriously. This is a way that we as as priests are to love one another and serve one another. Another way, very practical way, that we're to encourage each other as those, as it says here, those who are holy, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Another way is by doing what you're doing this morning. We should not take lightly to the ability for us to actually physically, tangibly gather with one another, be sitting around one another so that we're actually rubbing elbows, and interacting with one another in a very physical, tangible way, this world doesn't see the value in that anymore. And for us to be able to worship together. And for you to be able to hear the voice of those children singing the hymns beside you when you sing. Because your heart is weary from the week you've had. Or hearing the word of God be preached and think, this man has read my emails. <laughs> or having the word of God read by a brother in Christ. And that word of God grip your heart and say, yes, this is true, though my heart's been doubting it for so long. We gather on Lord's Day to serve one another. It's a very significant part of our being together as a body of believers. And then finally, we simply serve each other in tangible ways. Why? Not so that we can have more things or we can all pile everything up and have some kind of commune. No, the reason we serve one another is so that you can be better able to love and serve Christ better. We want to meet each other's needs, not just because you need things or you want things, but we serve and help one another tangibly so that you can be freed up to love Christ more faithfully with one another. Now, I hope you can see, I hope you can see how absolutely necessary this truth would have been for those struggling saints in Peter's day. Because it's important for us to recognize that he is speaking to these struggling saints and he's speaking to us today in the same way. As everything that was supposed to be stable in their lives in, for, in Peter's day, these people that were believers, everything that was supposed to be stable in their lives, their career, their job, their home, their family, all of that was falling away for these saints. And they're saying, is this worth it? Peter is assuring them and us that what Christ is doing through us is better and more sure and glorious than any building or kingdom or dream that any of us may have. And that we may attempt to try to build our own kingdoms on things that we hope for on earth, but they, like that significant, wonderful temple, will also pass away. But what, what will not pass away? It's the promises of God's word. Those who come to Christ by faith and in so doing lose so much of the promised pleasures and comforts of this life will never be scattered and despot, but instead united to Christ, the living stone, through though rejected by so many men in humanity, he is chosen and precious in God's sight, and so we're to live our lives in abandon, to serve one another and to love the church that God has given to us because we are being built together as a body of believers to glorify his name, 
And that will never, that will never be something to be ashamed of. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Where did I read that? It's at the end of our covenant together. It's in the back of our worship journal. This is what we need in order to be faithful to this point. Point number one in our passage. Point number two, turn with me if you will, to verses six through eight. Point number two is Christ the cornerstone. Christ the cornerstone. And here we have, we have three verses And we really have three specific ways that Christ, as cornerstone, we're to understand what it means. What's significant about Christ being a cornerstone? Why is this this metaphor so important? Peter helps us understand that, and he goes to Old Testament texts in order for us to understand this meaning. He turns us to these verses, and he encourages us to look at Scripture together. Why? Because Scripture is to fix our hearts on Christ. It is absolutely essential for us to understand that as we look at the scriptures, we are looking and understanding Christ and him more clearly. And so this is why Peter then turns his, his followers, the followers of Christ in his day and us today to scripture. And he says this in verse 6, he says, for it stands in scripture. He's wanting them to see. This is how sure this is. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see here Peter saying, this is what Scripture is saying, and specifically here, Peter speaking of his Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so, he's speaking here of this surety of them trusting in this one who is the cornerstone. In, order, in other words, in order for us to understand that Christ is the cornerstone, we need to understand that by fixing our hearts upon him, trusting in him, We have a surety that this world does not have. Why? Because as we fix our hearts and our hope upon him in the authority of the scriptures, we're made aware of the fact that we live today in a world that's not very stable. It is not very sure. It does not have a bedrock place to stand. In fact, every day we are inundated by the tsunami of messages that are coming to us Every authority, every professional, every study group wants us to listen to their demands and to understand what they are saying and say, you need to stand according to this truth. And then two days later, it's changed. But I want to remind you that this is exactly what the scriptures say. In fact, just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 of of 1 Peter, it says this, "All all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls and the opinions go away and they come. According to 1 Peter 1, verse 25, it says, But the word of the Lord remains forever. This is where we can fix our hearts. This is where we can fix our hope. We're called to stand on the most sure and reliable standard that has ever been given to humanity, and that is God's very word. And Peter is calling us to do the same. That's why he says, For it stands in Scripture. Well, what stands in Scripture? What is he speaking of? This message is one that the Lord wants us to receive and understand and rely on. Do you see why I say that? Because it says right here at the very beginning, it says, excuse me, it says, for it stands in Scripture. And then he says, behold. In other words, he says, receive this, understand this, perceive this, grasp this, rely on this. Peter is, is pulling from the Old Testament prophet, and specifically Isaiah chapter 28. Now, Isaiah is a big book. And Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. He wrote a very large book that was very significant. It's hard to find your way around in Isaiah because of all the different pieces. 
But here in Isaiah 28 specifically, and he's pulling this from our passage here in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. He's pulling from Isaiah 28. He's actually rebuking the religious leaders of God's people in Isaiah chapter 28. And he's rebuking those leaders because they are telling God's people that they would be naive to trust in God alone. Why? Because the Assyrians are coming. This other nation from the north. And the Assyrians basically said, when we come, we're going to kill all your children, take all your wives, and we're going to burn everything that's there, and then we're going to drag anybody that's able back to Assyria to work for us. And they were not kidding. In fact, we have historical accounts that that's exactly what they did. And they were told that in their city. And the leaders were saying to God's people in Jerusalem, in Isaiah chapter 28, the leaders were telling God's people, it's naive for us to just trust the Lord. This is serious. We've got our children to think of. We've got our families to think of. We, we, we can't just trust the Lord. This is, you're being way too naive, Isaiah. I mean, I know you're a religious man and you're supposed to say stuff like this, but, but trusting in God alone, that's foolish. You're going to regret this, especially considering the religious leaders that already began working with the, with the nation of Egypt. And Egypt said, hey, if you guys give us this, this, and this, we'll be glad to come up and fight for you and the Assyrians will leave you alone. And so the religious leaders are saying, listen, we have Egypt that we can call on. They can come up and help us. Isaiah was saying, trust the Lord. Isaiah, you're so foolish. To say we will trust in God just is way too simplistic for our complex and real world needs that we have today. That's what they were saying in Isaiah's day. Have you heard that before? Our world today, with all the science and all the abilities and all the things that we know, we can trust those things and the Lord. It's interesting. Because the religious leaders in Isaiah 28 were saying, don't abandon God, trust the Lord. But we also have Egypt. We can trust both. We can trust both. Listen to how Isaiah responds to these leaders. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. This is Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 28, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. He's calling the leaders scoffers. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. In other words, the leaders are saying, if you just trust the Lord, you're going to die. We need to trust something else. We need to bring something else in here, guys. We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, listen what Isaiah says. Behold, you hear what he's doing? Out of that context, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. In other words, the Lord's saying, I'm the one that's building this church. I'm the one that's doing this. Don't ever forget that. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, this is Isaiah continuing, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be ashamed. Now Peter is pulling this whole context into his quote here. Um, real quick, 
uh, back in the times of the Bible, there weren't verse numbers and chapter numbers like we have. And, and, and when they referenced something, it was like when we reference a quote in a movie, right? If somebody said a quote in a particular movie, it would recall the entire movie for us in our hearts because we don't have certain, we just know that when that quote is said, oh, that's that movie. And then we think of the entire storyline of that movie when we think of that quote, right? That's how the Old Testament, the, the people in the New Testament, specifically Peter, that's how he knew his Old Testament. He could say some quote, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right there, and it has all this stuff around it, right? And so when Peter quotes this, it's not like us that pull verses out of nowhere and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and apply that to the golf course somehow. That, that was just ridiculous and stupid, right? But, but Peter is actually applying the entire context when he brings it. And he says this verse actually means everything that's around it is what he's bringing into it. And so this, the message then is straightforward for us. I hope you can see. He's making it very clear. Listen to this clear message. This is where the scripture stands. Behold, the Lord says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him, and this one who is the cornerstone in Christ Jesus himself, will not be put to shame. Now, cornerstone, for those of us, me included, who's never built a building, the cornerstone is the first stone laid when a building is built. That stone dictates and determines every other place where all the other stones lay. In fact, in many ways, where that stone is placed will show where the rest of the building is going to be and how it's going to stand. In other words, every stone is squared by that stone and finds its essence in that cornerstone. Everything about the building finds its definition and is resting on that one stone. So if your life then is resting fully and finally on Christ and not Christ and something else, as your cornerstone, then do not tremble and do not shrink back and do not withdraw your faith from Christ. For he is the promised stone that the Lord laid that every other stone will fall from. He is the very cornerstone, that which is precious and chosen by God. Do not hesitate nor give yourself to uncertainty or any concern when you're trusting in Christ. Though the world around you will reject Christ, and assure you that you can trust Christ, but you can trust something else as well. Or they will tell you, if you trust Christ fully and absolutely and devote your life to him, you're being foolish. It is not worth it. You have too much to lose. There will be those who actually love you dearly, that may be family members and others, who will encourage you. Yes, you can trust Jesus, but it doesn't mean that you can't do this, this, and this, that we find that's enjoyable, that the world wants to place their hope in. The world's answers and trusting in Christ for our struggles and difficulties and sorrows and hardships is exactly where Isaiah 28 was. Even the religious leaders we have today are saying you can trust the Lord, and by trusting the Lord, you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to be happy. That's what Jesus wants. He wants you to be happy. Why can't I affirm Jesus as my Savior and still place my hope in some of the promises that the world has to offer me? Because that is not resting your heart in Christ. That is not setting yourself upon this cornerstone, this image, where everything then finds its bearing from him and from where he is laid. If you believe in Christ alone, you will find yourself regretting such unnecessary and absolute lifestyle 
It's what the world will say. I'm here to call you away from that ancient lie, that godless faithlessness that's been an argument since the days of the garden in Genesis 3. And instead, I want you to trust this. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That will stand forever. The second reason this metaphor of cornerstone is used is in verse 7, and it goes into verse 8. It's, it's 7 and 8 are together. The last sentence in verse 8 is actually a third point, a third subpoint. But notice with me here this exclusivity that's being spoken of when this cornerstone is spoken of. So the first reason this image of cornerstone is being used is to show that there is a surety in placing your life in this cornerstone, upon this cornerstone. The second is this exclusivity that needs to be understood when we use this image of cornerstone. Notice with me in verse 7 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that is in Christ, in this cornerstone, placing your rest upon him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean that it's the cornerstone? And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what it means. Peter is here going back again to Psalm 118, verse 22, to speak of the stone that the builders rejected. And then he refers us to an earlier passage in Isaiah 8. Again, he knows his Bible really well. And in Isaiah 8, here he is tenderly calling God's people. This is before they became frantic in Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 8, they were still saying, okay, what do I do? How do I handle this? Is this really what we need to be dealing with? And Isaiah is not as pressing, but instead he's tenderly trying to call them back to say, don't, don't stumble and be shattered by foolishly disobeying God's word. Don't, don't go somewhere else and try to find your trust. Because by doing so, you're going, to, you're going to abandon everything. Now, he was saying to them, he was saying, and this may be true for you. He was saying to them, though it may seem that God is hiding his face from you, don't give up on him. Now, sometimes we think, well, I'm only going to trust the Lord if he is as, as brazenly in front of my face as they, they were in, in, in the time of the Bible. But no, there's people in the Bible who were crying out to God and saying, Lord, I don't even know if you're hearing me or not. I don't know if I can trust you or not. What do I do? It seems, Lord, that you're hiding your face from me. Why would I trust you? Isaiah is here, and I am here this morning telling you, by the authority of God's word, you can trust him even if it seems his face is hiding from you. Beware of this foolish stumbling. But instead, bind up and seal and confirm again in your heart that the word of God is true. And you're going to stand there no matter what. You're going to place your stake in the ground. And what else may fall, may fall, but I'm going to stand on God's word. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is the hardest thing for me to do. It may be the hardest thing for you to do. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord to answer my prayer. I'm not going to call in all kinds of other things. I'm going to trust the Lord. Isaiah is tenderly pleading with God's people in this way. Listen to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. Isaiah 8, verses 11 through 17. And you'll see that this is exactly where Peter is drawing this passage. Isaiah 8, 11 through 17 says this. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy 
all that this people calls conspiracy. In other words, they were saying, believing in the Lord and trusting in his words, that's, that's conspiracy. You're, you're, you're telling us just to give up and let our kids be butchered. That's conspiracy. You're, you're giving up on Israel. And Isaiah says, no, I'm not giving up on Israel. I'm saying we need to trust the Lord. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Let me ask you this. Are we fearing the same things that the world fears? Are our hearts the same kind of hearts as the world around us? Are we dreading the things that they dread? Are we grasping for the things that the world grasps for? This is exactly where Isaiah, this is who Isaiah was speaking to in his day. It hasn't changed much. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. In other words, make it your aim that only He is the one you're desiring to please. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inheritance of Jerusalem. And what He's saying here is this, is that if you're trusting in the Lord, then don't worry about the enemies. The Lord will take care of those enemies. He will break them and cast them aside. And all of those who choose not to trust in the Lord... Even those who may be in the, in the house of Israel that are abandoning the Lord, the Lord will remove them as well, even though they may be a trap and a snare to you. And then it goes on, it says this in Isaiah 8, And many shall stumble on it. In other words, all these lies. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That sounds horrible. That's exactly what they're fearing, by the way. And Isaiah is saying, no, no, those things that are going to happen are going to happen for those who don't trust the Lord. And then Isaiah continues in verse 17 and says, Isaiah 8, 17, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. And wait for the Lord. Man, that's hard. That's hard. He goes on and says, Wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. But I will hope in him. That's called faith. That's not unusual, amazing faith. That's just, that's just basic. That's what faith means. Trusting in the Lord, waiting on him. His face seems to be hidden, but I'm still going to hope in him because he's my only hope. I'm not placing my hope anywhere else because everywhere else my heart and my life will be shattered. The point of our text here in 1 Peter is that there is no honor for those who doubt God's promises in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. Is there one here this morning who is seeking your own kingdom, living your own life according to your own plans and your own hopes? This text this morning calls you to do one clear thing. Repent. Repent from your own desire to live according to your own plans and come to Christ. According to our passage here in verse 4, come to Christ, the cornerstone. Trust Christ, the only cornerstone, laid by the Almighty God. And when, trust fully in, when one trusts fully in Him, you will never be ashamed. But all here this morning who do not believe in Christ, listen, all here this morning who do not believe in Christ, know this, on the authority of the eternal Word of God that will never change, you're disobeying God's Word by rejecting Christ. And this will cause you to finally stumble and fall and be broken forever, cast into the torments of hell. So I call you this morning by the authority of God's word to repent and come to Christ. I want to be clear here. 
Because many of us grew up in churches where you can be easily mistaken at this point. This is not a request that I'm making to you this morning. I'm not pleading with you. This is not a suggestion that I want you to leave here and consider. This is a flat-out command by God that if you do not repent and trust in Christ, your disobedience of rejecting the cornerstone will be devastating eternally. Do not leave this as a suggestion or a request. This is a command that God gives to each and every one of you here today. Now, if you think I'm being way too over the top here, it's Easter, so he's supposed to do this, right? Just endure, just hang in there. I want you to understand that verse 8 at the end, and we're going to close here, should shock us and cause us to tremble. Each and every one of us in here have a hint of a thinking in our mind that we own a good bit of the authority that is in the world. I'm I'm my own authority, my thinking and my logic and my ability to understand things. Only then will I will I be able to, you know, I'm the one that's kind of ordering and orchestrating things. All of us have that in us. It's foolishness, but it's all in us. But don't think for a minute, minute that you have God on the end of a string. He is Almighty God. And whenever you are ready, you can believe in Him, just you can just make it happen. No, God is not in heaven anxiously waiting for you to do something so that you can be saved. Listen to this sobering truth that Peter tells us this morning, and I want you to see it, and I'm really not going to comment on it a lot because it really is very clear. It's just incredibly difficult for our autonomous selves to like or to approve. And this is what it says at the end of verse 8. They stumble, speaking of those who refuse this cornerstone, who do not place their faith in Christ, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I hope you heard that truth. It's one that humbles us all. God is God and you and I are not. And you're wondering to yourself, what in the world is Peter doing? Why is he telling these people that are so beat up and and belabored and struggling and losing so many things? Why is he telling him this? He's saying God is sovereign. He's going to hold you if you're his. Don't despair. Don't worry. Don't think you're standing on the edge of a cliff about to fall off. I think the sense of this text really presses in on us and we have the answer right before us. This truth confronts us all. So many of us live in a culture today that so foolishly thinks that if I really, really believe something, really, 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 then it makes it true. We have crazy people out there that think they can believe something is true that's an absolute lie and then everybody else is supposed to say it's true too. Because if I believe it hard enough and I feel it really deep in my heart and I have so many feelings about it, then it's true. That's a lie. That's not true just because you feel it really deeply. That's, that's our culture making you believe that foolishness. Who's the father of lies? Satan himself. He's the one in charge of all of that. This truth confronts all of us that if you choose this morning to ignore Jesus, that doesn't make him go away. I'm just going to make it bare-knuckled right now. I'm going to get through this sermon 
And then here in a couple hours, I won't have to think about this again. Almighty God is still in heaven, and he's orchestrating your every breath. You will not take another one unless he gives it to you. Repent and trust in Christ. Place your faith in the cornerstone and never be ashamed and never regret his goodness. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. And I pray not by any of you. Which was or has become the cornerstone. Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in no one else. For, is there, for there is no other name in heaven given among men which we must be saved. Let us pray together.